Larry. Oops. can tell some people are enjoying yourselves far too much. <coughs> We're, uh, it's good to, good to have you here. We are continuing our sermon series uh, that we've been, been working on for the last, uh, last few weeks, The Light in my darkness and looking at some of the temptations that we we face in life that are common to all of us. <clears throat> Before we get into that though, I want to just ask you, how do you protect yourself? What are some precautions that you take? If we look around creation, we'll find hundreds of different defense strategies in various plants and animals. Uh, I saw this week uh, uh, about a, a magazine article about a, a frog that I think it hibernates or sleeps, and when it does, it turns itself translucent so that you, know, you look right through it and you only see whatever it's sitting on. So rather than you know, the chameleon changes color based on what it's... Uh, surrounding is, these frogs just turn to glass and you just see, you know, directly, it doesn't have to change color because, you know, translucent is so much easier than changing color, right? <clears throat> um, yeah, and so animals will, will camouflage themselves. Uh, and so we can go from that extreme of hiding to the other extreme of, you know, those little fish that hang out around the teeth of the big fish or in the tentacles of a jellyfish, and, and it's like, you know, we don't get stung, or we don't get eaten. Uh, we might even do a favor for that big scary creature, but in, in the little fish hanging out around the big fish, they get protection from the medium-sized fish, right? And so it's a defense, a protection strategy that, they're, that they've come up with. One of the oldest forms of protection in the animal kingdom is uh, armor, okay? Uh, so from, from dinosaurs, and, and this one not only has protective armor, it also has spikes and uh, you know, spears there to, to, that it could poke some, give someone a nasty poke if they got too close, but uh, to tortoises, turtles, and um, uh, perhaps we can even go with armadillos, right? They've sort of all got this really thick skin, this armor plating to protect them from would-be uh, predators. Somewhere along the way, humans decided armor was a good idea for, for our protection too, right? Um, and so we, we, these suits of armor, you know, that was sort of the, the classic of those middle centuries uh, of medieval time, castles and, and knights, but 
Um, even going back much further than that, you know, armor for soldiers going into battle has been um, a standard piece of equipment. Um, we're just too soft, you know, to be able to withstand those swords and arrows on our own. So perhaps you don't walk around with a suit of armor. <clears throat> I'd like to see if you do. Uh, but uh, how many protection devices do you have in your life? Just think about our locks, right? Did you lock your house when you left this morning? Did you lock your car when you parked here this morning? If not, then go you know, take care of that. Um, how about your, your phone? Does your phone have a lock on it? Right? How many passwords do you have as a means of locking your information, protecting your information? We might lock desk drawers or filing cabinets. Uh, we hope that the bank has a good lock on its doors and it's safe, you know, to safes to protect our finances. And then because locks in and of themselves aren't enough, we're seeing more and more security cameras, not just in businesses and banks and churches, but also in people's homes, right? Uh, so that we can check on the house, check on the cat, check on, get alerts when the doorbell rings, no matter where we are in the world. As long as we have a, a phone signal, we can see what's, what's going on uh, at, at our home. And so these type of precautions are important for our safety. But they're not the only way that we protect ourselves. They're physical ways that we protect ourselves. But we also are going to protect ourselves in other areas of our lives. Have you ever said something to a, a friend, a, a workmate, uh, somebody at church, and uh, something that was meaningful to you, and, and they just shut you down, they just reject it. They, they say, that's a dumb idea, or that's a ridiculous thought. And, and so if you have that experience with that person, who do you talk to the next time you have an idea? or a thought, right? There's a good chance it's not that person, okay? And, and so what we, what we do is we withdraw, right? And, and so whether it be, you know, like a, a tortoise going into a shell, maybe not physically, but relationally or, or emotionally, we withdraw in order to protect ourselves from that rejection in the future. We've spent the past few weeks looking at these three monsters that lurk in the dark places of our souls. Comparison, the quest for more, and the quest for success. And it's not just the quest, it's the identification. We identify ourselves, we find our value in our comparison to others, in our, the amount of stuff that we have or in the success that we have or don't have. 
And so how can we protect ourselves? It's one thing to say, hey, look, here's the, here's the problems. Here's the things that can cause us uh, to struggle in life, can, can, can give us difficulty in, in being the people that God wants us to be in life. They can distract us from God, take the place of God. How can we protect ourselves against these monsters? But first I want to highlight how it is that these monsters have a role in the ways that we protect ourselves. We might think of a little mountain village many years ago whose residents were terrified by the dreadful moans and howls that they heard coming from the forest at night that surrounded the village. They didn't have any access to trail cams or ring doorbells. So they went out and they found a dragon that they could bring to the village. And at first, everything was great. Whenever in the middle of the night, the terrifying howls and moans filled the air, the dragon would roar and breathe some fire and, and then the terrible sounds would stop. And as the months rolled by, the villagers began discussing some concerns they were having. It seemed that they were spending the majority of their time and energy providing for the dragon. They had to, uh, they, they had to accumulate enough food to keep the dragon happy. They had to build a large barn for the dragon to sleep in during the winter. They had to dig a new well to provide water for the dragon. If the dragon felt hungry, thirsty, or cold, it would roar and shoot fire towards their houses. It came to pass after a while that the villagers no longer worried about the sounds they heard at night, but they spent a great deal of time worrying about how to keep the dragon happy. And the book I'm using as a guide for this sermon series makes this observation. Evil crosses our doors first as a stranger. Then it becomes a friend, but it doesn't leave until it has become our master. I know that might sound like a cat, <clears throat> but it also applies to these monsters that we've been discussing. Each of these temptations has an element of goodness to it that's enticing at the beginning. While we shouldn't allow others to define ourselves, we should be concerned about how others view us. Am I trustworthy? Am I perceived as honest? Or am I actually honest, perhaps? Do others look to me for advice and value what I have to say? In Timothy and Titus, an elder is to be a person with a good reputation. 
That's all about how other people regard them. Jesus taught that we're to let our light shine before others so that they can see our good works and then glorify God. So the idea of, of being aware of how others are viewing us is a good one. It's an important one because we walk through life loving people, bearing witness for God trying to make a, an impact on those around us. But the, the temptation, the, the monster goes from friendly to scary. When we allow the opinions of others to protect us from godly self-examination. When we, we take either the criticisms to heart or the praises and compliments to heart, as we say, they are the reality, they must be the reality. Because that person said it to me, regardless of whatever that person's motivation might be or whatever they have going on in their lives. And so when we take that to heart, rather than considering our own hearts and our own relationship with God, then the dragon has become a monster. In our society, we begin preparing children from a very early age of the need to make a living for themselves. Okay? Have you ever gone up to a young child or seen someone go up to a young child and say, what are you going to be when you grow up? Right? Never too young to ask that question. And, and how many of us have told people, I'm going to be a fireman, I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be a policeman, I'm going to go to be an astronaut when, when I grow up, right? And we begin this process and this thinking, what am I going to be? What am I, where am I going to go in my life? None of those kids ever seem to say, I'm going to be an accountant. You know, I'm going to be a middle manager, um, at some anonymous company somewhere. You know, like, they, they never say that. They're, they're just, those children's books just don't have enough imagination for that kind of thing. But um, we, we start getting, helping each other to think about these things. What's your life going to look like? How are you going to provide for yourself and for your family as you, when you get older? What are you going to study in college are you going to go to college? And so we begin this process very early. And there's not really anything wrong with that, is there? But our society doesn't help us decide when we have enough. <laughs> society doesn't help us decide when we have enough. All those people who are saying, what are you going to be when you grow up? Little kid says, I'm going to be a hedge fund manager and I'm going to make billions and I'm going to buy a football team and move it to my favorite city. Okay? And, and you, you look at them and you go, well, great! We hope you get billions. And if you get billions, you can move your football team wherever you want to go. Right? Because that's a good... Society doesn't say, well, millions aren't enough for you. Hundreds of thousands aren't enough for you? Like you need billions? And, and so society doesn't help us decide when we have enough. 
Society doesn't help us decide when it is we should stop accumulating for ourselves and start giving and sharing with others and lifting them up. Society doesn't give us that sort of inclination. So somewhere there's a line, and I don't think we can define it as a group, but somewhere there is a line where we move from providing for myself, providing for my family, to perhaps, uh, I hear football players that get, you know, sports athletes that get uh, large contracts. They talk about generational wealth, right? So we've moved to generational wealth. That their children or their grandchildren are going to be provided for because of the contract that they get. But, but then there's some that even go beyond that. So what does that quest for more? Is it wrong to be a billionaire? I think that depends what you do with it, doesn't it? Depends how you use it. But sometimes the things we have to do to reach that point can be wrong. We need to be very careful about what our values are because there's a point where possessions become our obsessions. And as we come to define ourselves by our possessions, as we, we prove everyone wrong that we came from nothing and now we have something, and because we have something, we've made something of ourselves, then we're not prompted to examine our character and our righteousness but just what we have and what we can point to. Similarly, God tells us, as we look at the third point here, that we're, a lot of things that we're to do and not do as his children, right? What we do matters. What we do is important. Again, a lot of things that we do characterize us, right? If we we look at the headlines and we see somebody's face up there and we go, oh, I don't like that person. Why not? Well, they did this, right? And so it, our actions do have consequences. Our actions do change the way that people look at us and think about us. That's just a, a reality. But we also need to be careful that we ourselves don't define ourselves by what we do. I've known people who are busy doing good, kind, godly things. They have a tremendous reputation from the people that know them. But their motivation doesn't come from a healthy relationship with God. Rather, they're motivated by a sense of shame or fear or guilt, trying to make up for something not so good that they did in their past, or, or perhaps an insecurity or an inferiority. The good behavior they're routinely praised for protects them from letting others see their weaknesses and vulnerability. And so each of these, I think part of their becoming, um, becoming the monster that they can be, I think it involves a protection of who we, uh, uh, it morphs into becoming a means of protecting who we really are from the eyes of people around us. And so I wanted to say for us, and this might seem counterintuitive, the first step to protecting ourselves from these monsters requires that we accept their presence in our lives. Okay? 
We have to accept that they're there. You see, sometimes we might say, oh no, I, I'm not, I don't define myself by what we have, by what I have. You know, and, and I'm, you know, in order to, to overcome that, I'm going to eliminate everything from my life. Right? Then we can't do that. Right? I, I'm not going to, to worry about what people say about me. I'm just going to eliminate all people from my life. Okay, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm unemployed. I don't have to worry about <laughs> defining myself by what I do. I'm defined by what I don't do. Um, so <clears throat> we, we need, to be, we, we need to, to be careful because we can't say, oh, I eliminated that, that temptation. It, these temptations are part of being human. And, and so we have to come to terms and say, yeah, these are part of my life. And so when we, the, the, the book that we're using is actually uh, called Befriending Our Monsters, something like that, Befriending Your Monsters. And so it, it's the idea that they're not going anywhere, right? They're, they're staying with us. And we need to befriend them. We need to get used to their presence so that we can keep them in check. None of these are new temptations. We read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in this chapter, and really the, the conversation begins back in, in chapter 11, Paul finds himself defending his qualifications as an apostle. It's like he has to give his resume. He says, look, no, I'm a valid, legitimate, approved, authorized by God apostle. And you people who are accusing me of being otherwise, you're the ones who are false. And so he begins comparing himself to them, comparing himself to other people. Um, in uh, verse 22 of chapter, he lay, oh, verse, starting verse 21, he says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, he says, I'm speaking as a fool, he says, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind for talking like this. <clears throat> I am more a servant of Christ. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and goes on. So his, Paul is like jumping into this conversation of comparison. He says, look, they're, they're trying to say that they're more worthy than I am. And so he's defending himself, laying out his resume. But you could see this sort of discomfort that he has as he does so. Like, yeah, I really wish I didn't have to do this. I don't really want to boast, but it's not as though my life has been nothing. You know, it's, it's, I didn't just fall into this position. And so comparison. We see the danger of it. Paul's reluctance to compare himself to others, even in his own defense, even when it's valid, uh, lets us know of, of the danger there. In verse 30 of this, verse, uh, of this chapter at the top there, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
So in the ordinary sense, when he wasn't being challenged in this way, he wasn't going to walk into a church and say, hey, it's good to be here. I had to fight off lions on the way. I wrestled a bear. You know, I would, all the time I was reading Isaiah. And here's a book that I wrote on the prophet Isaiah while I was on my way here, fighting that bear and the like. Like he's not trying to promote himself. But he says, if I'm going to boast, it's of the things that show my weakness. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, uh, he, Jesus, God, said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, Let's understand, Paul isn't going for a job interview, right? Because <laughs> if somebody comes in and they just, to a job interview, and they just tell you all the things that they can't do, but it's all right, I'm a Christian, so God's on my side. Um, are they going to get that job? <laughs> no. Why would anybody hire somebody that can't do the things that the job requires to be done? And so the, he's not talking about it in that context. He's saying there are places where comparison is good, where we do this. But he says, if I'm going to boast in general life about who I am, what I'm going to boast about is, is how dependent I am on God's grace. And so when we define ourselves by what we have, when we define ourselves by what we do, what we're actually projecting is a message that says, you know, I don't need God's grace because look what I have. I don't need God's grace because look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Paul says, no, when, when I, if I'm going to boast, it's going to be like, what has God done in my life? Where has God's grace been evident in the things that I have accomplished? And so Paul demonstrates, I believe, an awareness of his monsters. He acknowledges the temptation to promote himself rather than God. It's not that he was unaware of it. He knew what he'd done. He knew that he was an Israelite, a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham. He knew that he was a, you know, a, a committed servant of God. He could say, even though he says, I feel foolish saying this, that I am more of a servant of God than you are. He knew that that was a reality and a truth, but that wasn't how he defined himself. Right? He also recognized that thought process as a temptation. And his answer to that temptation was to say, no, I'm going to glory in my weaknesses and the appreciation of the grace that God has given to me. And so it's this awareness of his temptations, the awareness of those dangers that allows him to make those challenging statements about his weaknesses. And so we take so much pressure off ourselves and those around us, when we allow each other to be human. Right? We take so much pressure off ourselves and those around us when we allow each other to be human. Okay. 
because I think so often we, our monsters inside us want us to promote ourselves as being able to take on the world. Right? We've got to, I am everything I need to be to achieve, to accomplish. I'm good, I'm healthy, I'm happy. Life is great, I'm getting, doing what I'm doing. And, and when we, we say anything less than that, we feel bad about ourselves. Oh, I'm complaining. Oh, I'm just not good enough. Oh, I'm a waste of a person. Yeah, we can really easily slip down a slippery slope. And yet Paul says, no, it's those things, it's those moments that say, God's been able to do some really good things in my life. Because the reality is we all fail at something. No matter how good we are at one thing, there's another thing we're terrible at. Right? And so if we're put in a situation, you know, if your hedge fund manager suddenly says, I'm going to become a dentist, he's going to go out of business. Right? Because he doesn't know what he's doing. And, and so when we, you know, humanity, our humanity is that we're going to struggle in different areas of our lives. And so when we can celebrate God's grace rather than grieving our shortcomings and weaknesses, I believe it's actually a sign that we're growing in our faith and in our walk with God. In place of using these monsters to hide our hurts and struggles, to obscure the, the real me, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we see how God has given us an armor of protection. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. You don't need to protect yourself. Be yourself and put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. God's given us the protection that we need. When our identity is in God, our faith is stronger. We can be sure of our salvation. We're going to live lives of righteousness. We don't fear speaking the truth. We have God's sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, 
and the shoes of peace. So many of the things that we seek in life, we seek in these false identities that the monsters create for us, rather than finding our identity in God. God knows we need protection. He knows we face temptation. He, he knows that the devil is hurling fiery arrows at us. And so he gives us his spirit. He gives us his son. He gives us his word. He gives us this armor. And recognizing that our need for protection, our weakness, allows us to focus on the things that strengthen our relationship with God. 